Welcome to the Real Leaders Podcast. You are listening to episode seven of the Keep It Real series with Real Leaders Top 50 keynote speaker and the CEO of We First, Simon Mainwaring. See, Simon advises the world's most successful and impactful companies on how to lead the future. We have him on every single month to help you understand how to do that. In this episode specifically, we focus on a leadership brand and how a solid leadership brand and identity can make all the difference internally and externally. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, please give it up for the real Simon Manwaring. Enjoy. Uh, it's a hundred and fifty thousand word milestone. Um, fifty thousand words. Yeah, I'm gonna yeah. click going live. We can keep talking. Hundred fifty thousand words. That is crazy. Yeah. So how many uh, pages is that? Oh, right now it's too long. It's um, it's actually one hundred eighty thousand right now, but it, it's about four hundred, five hundred right now. It's got to come down. Four hundred so. to five hundred pages in your new book. Yeah. yeah. Oh but God. it's got to come down. It's, it can't be that long. And, you know, this is, first draft is always too long. Turn this thing off. This is to remind me that we're talking. Now, I heard th- I heard that's a thing. Like when you finish a book, like there's always stuff like you wanted to add. Like, it, like the hardest part is to kind of cut it down. Is that right? Yeah, it is true to some degree. I mean, the interesting thing is, and this is my experience. I've only written one book, but that was enough to know that you don't know what you're writing about until you've written the book. Like you have an instinct when you begin the book and then you keep writing and writing and writing. And then by the time you get to the end of the book, you're like, oh, my God, that's what I was writing about. And one of the interesting things that I learned on the first book is it's a powerful tool if anyone is writing a book is you can write a book and you write the final chapter. And then you take the final chapter, which is the you know conclusion, the, you know, extrapolated everything all the way through, and then you put it at the front. You take it from the last chapter, you put it as the first chapter, and you rework the whole book. And what that does hmm. is it, tele- it, it throws your book, it kind of leapfrogs, it thrusts it forward, and it takes it much further than otherwise might have happened. So, Like, like you're know. reverse engineering it. Like, yeah. I mean, often, yeah, because when you've actually come to the conclusion as to what you were driving towards, that becomes a very powerful point of departure. Hmm. And that, that can inform the second pass on your book. And when you look back at doing that process, your book will, you, the book will move that much more, the, move the dialogue or the narrative or the thesis much further forward. So. Now, that's an interesting segue because I, I was interested like how you would come up with a framework for <laughs> coming up with your brand, your brand script. Yeah. Do you start at the end? What are some of the questions you ask? And like, you know, for me, my stories, I'll just write like a little five paragraph essay that they taught us in, you know, sixth grade English. Right. But for a brand, does it develop as you're writing the script for the book? Um. You know, the thesis of the brand does, you know, mm. all I can do is base it on my own experience, which was, you know, I was an ad guy. I was just taking care of my career, trying to pay the bills and keep my family going here in the States. And, um, you know, I, I, I was unsatisfied with the ad career. So I, I wanted, decided to write a, a book. And it was a really an answer to the global economic meltdown that happened in 2007 and 2008. And in the end, at the end of the day, it was really dumb, simple. I just sat there and thought to myself, with this big meltdown that's going on, what is gone wrong here? What is, what is wrong with this picture? And it was this idea that 
you know, everyone was too self-centered or the investment banking world and beyond was, you know, putting profit for profit's sake first. And, and so that led me to this realization of this me first thesis has really been driving business. You know, greed is good. Wolf of Wall Street, that whole thing. And so for me, the brand developed just as an antidote to that. I really felt like We First was a tonic to that. And then I wrote a book to explain what We First would mean as a business practice. And so the thesis developed in the writing of the book and the brand developed too. And then all the work that we've been doing in our consulting for the last 10 years is really about putting that sort of theory into practice. And so, yes, I think it does evolve. But at the end of the day, it's, it's got to have an essence. It's got to have a keystone thought, it's this touchstone that you keep going back to. What is that singular idea you're trying to communicate that has a lot of compressed complexity and dimension to it that you then bring to life through your work, through your communication, through your marketing, through your collaborations, whatever it might be? Now, for someone who's worked with you know, big company brands their entire life to now someone who wrote a book, was the author of that book. Yeah. Is the instructor for their courses is the main host of the podcast. What are some of the differences between building a personal brand versus a company brand? Yeah, this is such a good question. And it's something I've struggled with a lot of long for a long time. And also I've asked lots and lots of people about. So my answer is informed by lots of people smarter and more experienced than myself. At first, when I launched We First, I launched, effectively, I didn't really realize what I was doing. I just wanted to get a book out there and, and I didn't even know if it was going to be any good or not. And what that did was, because it did well, it launched a personal brand. And I've been a staff guy for 18 years inside ad agencies. I never want to launch a brand. I didn't care. I didn't even know what that was. A personal brand was, I don't know, Paris Hilton or, I don't know, Andre Agassi, an athlete. I don't know what that was. So suddenly it takes on a life of its own. And then after a couple of years, I actually found a, a sort of a dissonance there, a discomfort where... I was going out to the world with this thesis about doing things in a we first way, yet the way it was presenting itself to the world was a very self-directed and that you're the focal point of attention, sure. which kind of felt me first. Interesting. So anyway, so I consciously stepped away from that after about two years. This was in 2013, 2014. The book came out in 2011. And for those who've known me, they've probably noticed for the last seven or eight years, even though I do social, I pulled back 90% of what I was doing and really put my energy into the company because writing the book was all about getting the real meat and potatoes work done. Now that I have a new book coming out, I have to step that up again. And I've talked to my team and said, oh, I've got to kind of put on this personal brand hat again. It's going to be weird. And when I ask other people, because this throttling between the personal and company brand is a real tension, Mm. they say it's not an either or proposition. It's an and. And so if you're a CEO, if you're a founder, if you're a solopreneur, anyone who's watching this, you know, you, you need to serve as the tip of the spear for your IP you know, for your thinking, for the role that your company, your team is going to play in the world. And so that doesn't mean it's all about you. But this is a very noisy place. There's a lot of competition for people's attention. There's a lot of people playing in adjacent areas. So you need to go out there and not only be a voice, but be a differentiating voice. If you have a point of view on capitalism, if you have a point of view on plant-based living, if you've got a point of view on clean beauty, if you've got a point of view on, I don't know, beverages, you've got to go out there with a point a view in the world that is not only true and authentic to you, but also expressed in a way that's differentiated to others because otherwise you won't cut through. And then in that tip of the spear capacity, you command attention, you serve as sort of, uh, you know, raise awareness for the brand. And then, you know, the company captures that and then the company talks about its work, but it's a two-hander personal and company brand do need to go together. 
And I, I think that will be the way moving forward. Because why? Because you, Kevin, are a media company. Look at us right now, broadcasting to everywhere. I am a media company. Every single person watching this is a media company, in which case you've got to you know, work as such, operate as such. You know, when I was starting out, it was like, gosh, you know, what do I talk about? What, what's the one problem I'm going to solve? I feel like most of the brand names have become such strong brand names because of the problem they solve, especially right. those individual brands like Dave Ramsey, like Brene Brown, you know, Brene Brown sure. is vulnerability in one mm-hmm. word. That's what she helps, yep. you know, solve for um, Dave Ramsey. It's debt. Debt is dumb. Cash is king. Mm. That's yep. what he solves. How does someone derive mm. their differentiator factor? Yeah, it's a, such a powerful question because here's the, the, the rub. Everyone is so time poor. Everyone is so attention poor that right. if you can't communicate what you're about in almost one word, mm. like I would say in your case with the Real Leaders brand, it's not so much leadership, but it's real leaders mm. in terms of how you show up a person, the results you get, and so on and so on. Simon Sinek has done you know marvelous work around the idea of why. Renee Brown, vulnerability. In my case, it was we first. And, you know, the new book is um, called Lead with We, and it's all about we. And I'd like to own, you know, in the sense of championing and enabling and supporting the concept of what we, this whole we mindset can play in people's lives. So how do you get there? I think there's a couple of different things you've got to do. And this is all, again, based on personal experience. You've got to get out of your own way. A lot of the time, and this may sound a bit woo-woo, but you know, I spent my whole life thinking, planning, strategizing, writing lists, trying to make my way in the world, you know, no family in America and sort of trying to make a start. But only when you know, my father's sudden passing and so on did I get out of my own way and shut up for once and just allow whatever was supposed to show up and what I cared about and who I authentically am to show up. I wasn't some ad guy who was trying to be too cool for school or any of that. I'm a family guy who really empathetically feels um, upset by the suffering of others and I can't look at it and not know what that is, in which case I started to think, well, what's wrong with business and why isn't it working and so on and so on. Every single one of us is a unique combination of nurture and nature and there's something fundamental to who we are. The fact that you're hosting this podcast and reaching out to folks like me and, and giving them a voice, you know, there's a role that we're all playing. So to distill down that essence, you've really got to kind of get out of your own way, number one, and allow what is ever true to you, authentically true, to show up and almost suspend your anxiety to get there and to answer the question, but be very attentive as to what you see showing up. And then you start to write down the ideas and the thoughts and the ideas and the thoughts and so on, and you'll start to see a theme emerge. And then you can look at and press in on the language of that theme to distill where it was. So for me, it was like, I don't like that everyone's getting screwed over by the way business is being done. And I probably think there's a better way that business could be done. And what's the problem with that? Well, it seems to revolve around a small number of people and they're taking the vast majority of the rewards and marginalizing everyone else. This, what's that language around that? It just seems so me first, all of that. And it all led to, to we first. I'm just walking you through the process. It should be the same with anyone. And there's a few questions you can ask to define this and then I'll stop. One is, what's your enemy? If you don't know what you're for, start with what you're against because that's the springboard you're pushing against. So what's your enemy? What's that thing that pisses you off so royally 
you talk about it too much, that it gets you out of bed in the morning when you're lying in bed with your partner or significant other and you won't shut up about it. When you're at a dinner party and you've had two or three glasses of wine too many and it's like, oh, for God's sake, shut up. He's always talking about blah, blah. You know, what is that thing? What's your enemy? Secondly, what are you the only of? There's only one of you in the world, the journey you've been on, where you came from, parents, nurture, nature, all that good stuff. And then when you're at your best, what are you doing? Mm. When you're at your best, what are you doing? And if you start to answer these types of questions, you can start to go, hey, this is what I care about. This is where I'm best equipped to play a role. This type of impact would be most meaningful to me. And again, you push in on that language and push in on the language and write it down and write it down. And the way it worked for me was I started writing blog posts back when blogging was new in 2008 or 2009. And then I started to notice themes. You'd write about anything for the first month or so. And then you'd be like, well, I wrote about this. And write it. And you'd go, oh, I know. Mm. So um, get out of your own way. Interrogate yourself with some questions. Observe the results. Um, really push the language. And then see how, how um, far you can distill it down. And uh, if you really are authentic about that process, I think something will emerge that you can leverage for sure, effectively to have impact and, and have a business and be a brand if you want to be. That's powerful because you know, I, I feel like so many people deal with confusion about who they are, what they are, what's their why, how do I articulate this in my messaging across all platforms? One of the exercises we did, and, I, and maybe you'll agree or disagree with this, is we did a brand voice exercise. And so we kind of came down with like, you know, your villain, you know, ours was like, you know, the status quo, right? Like yep. we, we hate, you know, the whole traditional fake, I'm going, I'm going to be your best friend and, and, you know, mess, you know, screw you over. You right. know, we, we don't like the stereotypical dress up and, and business talk and I'm a fake person and I have nothing else about me and i'm shallow and i can't tell anyone about it right? right so we were going to be authentic inspiring and bold those are going to be your oh. three things that we and every single message that we put out email like post bio description it was going to be around <clears throat> those three things would you would you agree with a, a brand voice for social media and people listening to this that have company yeah. brands yeah i would i mean you know whether you're a company or a personal brand what you just said is so powerful you know, if you can write down those three attributes that are really authentic to you and the role you want to play in the world, it's enormously um, empowering for you to go, you know what, this is how I'm going to show up. This is how it's, it's going to be. I mean, I think in my case is I'm passionate, hopefully, mm -hmm. um, you know, um, inspiring, hopefully, because, I mean, I don't mind being out in the front of a room or speaking or doing those other things. Um, and I think credible or well-informed. Like, you know, I, I, I often for a long part of my life lived from a place of fear. I never felt I was good enough, smart enough, successful enough. Well, does anybody like me? What, all that stuff that we all go through in life. And so I'd over-rev and over-index and do too much research. So for me, you know, that credibility piece is very important. So I think those defining those three attributes that are defining how you show up in your tone of voice is absolutely true. Because it'll help you decide what to say, but just as importantly, what not to say and when to respond to an issue and when not to respond to an issue. And um, I think that, yeah, you, you know, this is a whole process. Like we do this with personal brands and also with large brands. Mm. And, you know, if I was to oversimplify, because there's a series of questions for each one, there's a, there's a process. And let me put it this way. Imagine your purpose, your individual purpose sits at the intersection of three circles in a Venn diagram. And that first circle is you on your own. 
like ask yourself those foundational questions about, you know, what matters to you and, and what difference do you want to make in the world and all those sorts of things. The second area is you and others. You know, what difference do you want to make in others' lives? So, you know, what role do you want to play in your own? What role do you want to play in the lives of others? And then what role do you want to play in the world? So it's kind of telescoping out from you to kind of community to the world at large. And there's a series of questions that go with that. And that will really help you define how you play an outsized role in life, you know, how you have a purpose larger than yourself. And that in turn will motivate you because I think I've mentioned it before. I, I, I spent years trying to work out what success was looked look like and spent years trying to make myself feel good about myself and years trying to, I don't know, validate myself in the eyes of others by getting an important job or winning a shiny statue or something. And then I got to be around a lot of really great people like Sir Ken Robertson and President Clinton and other things like that, doing events and things. And the thing that almost to a fault that I learned from them all is that the greatest fulfillment you can find for yourself is not what you get from others, but what you give of yourself to others. And that's not my wisdom, it's their wisdom. And the more you give of yourself to something larger than yourself to others, you will start to be fulfilled, not because others are filling you up, but because you're filling yourself up from the inside. Fulfillment is an inside job. And most of us, including myself, spent my whole bloody life doing it the wrong way. But if you really be of service and give to others, you will start to feel the, the, the meaning that you want in your life, the significance, the fulfillment. That is really the, the greatest reward you can get. Screw all the stuff that you may, have buy, may or may not buy on the way because ultimately you're left there, hopefully with a drink in your hand and a friend, and you're like, well, did it matter? Was it, did it matter that I was here? Did I make a difference? That's all that happens in the end. So. Now, Simon, I think there's a question in there that one could ask themselves that would also help distinguish what they're good at and what makes them unique. And that might be, you know, what challenges they had to overcome that now they believe they can educate and give back to inspire others. Because you think about it, you were working in, in, you know, in branding and you said, how do we create this we first mentality? And then you go out you work with mission-driven branding, right? You do all these exercises. How do we create this we first world? And now you want to share with the world because you've done that. Mm-hmm. For me, it was, I don't know anything about social enterprises, but I know it's good, right? But I, right. I can't explain it. I don't know the business lingo. Hell, I, you know, I failed accounting, right? You know, right. I need to understand how business works. So I'm going to interview hundreds and hundreds of business people to then relay that information in a course, in a blog post, in something sure. in a natural fit. So maybe the question, maybe we can come up with here is, what would you ask people in that train of thought to think about um, how they can differentiate their brand from somebody else? What makes them unique? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I think, and this is on the strength of 25 years of marketing and 10 years of my own company and dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of brand solutions. We look in the wrong place all the time. We are constantly looking out there for the solution as to who you should be or what will make you different to others. It is important to know what the market landscape is, personal brand, company brand. But the truth is, and this sounds a little bit like personal development philosophy, but it's sort of it is. The, the, the most important work and the far more successful work you can do is about revealing what you already are. 
Like everything you need to be is within you. All the talents, the skills, the differentiation is within you. The problem is most of us can't read the label from inside the jar. We can't see who we are because we're consumed by it. We've got these speed balls of ideas bouncing around in our heads every day and we're lost. And the reason we do this whole process of asking questions and so on is to externalize yourself, to take yourself outside yourself so that you can see it on paper. So when you answer these questions, what are you the only of? You know, when you're at your best, what are you doing? What is your enemy? That sort of thing. You start to see the themes emerge. And so I would really encourage people to kind of take a load off their shoulders and not and take that pressure off of going, gosh, what's going on out there? And what should I be doing? And what's this person doing over there? And da da da. And to really go, you know what? I am going to step into my truth. I'm going to be who I am and I'm going to make the company, the product I want to do. And if it has value and if I'm doing it with integrity and if I really invest my energy and time and smarts and the advice of others into it, it's going to be successful because it will find its audience. Instead of reverse engineering it out of the marketplace saying, what do they want? And what are consumers doing now? What's my competitor doing? Because you'll just blow in the wind all the time. And I think one of the most compelling attributes of any brand in the marketplace is how self-assured they are. Like if you walk into a party, you know, anywhere. Remember when we used to have parties? Remember when people used to get together? Do you remember when people used so. to hug strangers, maybe even had a, you know, like a makeout session, whatever? I don't know. I just blocked Anywho, that out. I just blocked I just that out. It's all gone now. Um, but, you know, if you walk into a party and you try and please everyone you're talking to, then you'll probably leave the party and people will be like, yeah, seem like a nice person or whatever, but they don't really have an opinion. But if you walk in there, self-assured, self-possessed, you talk about what you do like, what you don't like, some people may not gravitate towards you because you're just different. You don't align around interests. But others will be like, boom, loved that person. They are the bomb, right? And that's because you showed up enough for others to orientate themselves around you. And so coming back to your question about how you develop your personal brand, the sooner you can step into your own truth and yes, arguably polarize people because some will like you, but some also won't like you. The sooner you'll find your tribe, as Seth Godin would say, and the sooner you can build a business around it because those people are genuinely aligned with something as opposed to kind of being wish and washing. And you see, you see all these brands trying to play down the middle of the fairway and please everyone. And no one even knows who they stand for. And if you're a personal brand listening to this, I've got to say, when I stopped trying, um, to be whatever version of success or something that other people, I thought, you know, other people were projected, there was this an alignment between who I am and what I do on a daily basis that was so empowering. Why? Because you're finally giving yourself, not anyone else, you're giving yourself permission to be yourself, damn the consequences. And then secondly, you know what you're going to do and you don't worry about what others are going to do. You're not worrying about Mr. Banker over here making more money or this person over here who seems to be successful. Because that's not who you are. That's not what you do. And so, and so all of that energy, I remember I used to spin my wheels thinking all the time around what others are doing and what success is and what should I be doing and what am I doing wrong and what don't I know. And I just all that energy you get back and you get to channel that into what you're supposed to do. Hmm. So all of that is to say the answers are within you and your only job is to reveal that as much as you can and then to trust in that and move forward with it. 
And when you do that, people will experience that alignment between who you are and what you do. Every single thing you do will ring true to them because it's true to who you are. And last note on this, the theorists about speaking say that 70% of communication on stage is physical. It's not what you say, you know, and I've been a speaker for a long time. And so when you have that self-possession, when you know who you are, you can walk on stage and you don't worry about how big your hand gestures should be. You don't worry about the modulation of your voice. You don't worry about all this kind of external critique. You just show up authentically and people feel that and they believe you because they, they can tell that you are speaking your truth. So it plays out at a brand level. It plays out at a communication level. And I dare say it plays out on a relationship level. So that would be my advice. Plays out <laughs> at the party level. Now, like, let's take this example, though. What's Consistency that? versus yeah. uniqueness. At the party, I'm the talker. I'm going to go around and be consistent. I'm going to say the same. Is that what you are? Everybody. Yeah, you're like, say, this is who hey, I hey. am and this is my brand script and this is my elevator pitch for every single person at that party. Right. So that by the time I leave, everyone knows exactly what I said and it's consistent with what I said, whether it was a story or something. However, there's one Australian always in the back corner. He's the unique person at the party. And he's, oh, that's the unique Australian at the party. And there's one person, he's in the back corner, but everyone knows who he is. So how much weight do you put on consistency versus unique? You know what? As an Australian, not many people really talk about this because it's a secret. But when you, know, when you get your passport and your citizenship, they say, all right, fellas, listen, g'day, mate. Now, when you go out to a party, there's only allowed to be one of you. And you've got to distribute yourself around all the parties in the world and just do this dance. Movie. It is true. Wherever you go in the world, and we've all traveled a bit, there's always one bloody Australian in the room, isn't there? Um, always. I think I, and that's a consistent you know, story, by the way, on this podcast. Uh, it's, it's, it is strange. And all I would say is um, there is a certain ethos in the air in Australia, where everyone's kind of pretty easygoing, and they're not really trying to big note themselves a hundred, you know, too much as much as other some cultures or you know nationalities might do, um, and so they just show up and they just want to have a good time. So, to your question, um, I think the more authentic you are, the better. Like my wife, like we've been married almost thirty years. My wife loves music, loves it, loves it. She doesn't care if she's in a room of the fanciest people in the world complete strangers, really public, good track, music track comes on, she is like moving. It's like can't even stop herself. And then the other music freaks in the room join her and suddenly it's all going on and you're like, how do you be okay with that? Like I'm I'm more reserved than that. Um, I just think it's, it's within you. Like I think the more that you can just be yourself, um, and let others self-select around that, whether they want to spend time with you, talk with you, dance, do whatever, whatever. I think that's, you just go with that. I mean, I'm 54 years old in a couple of weeks and, um, and, uh, it's getting old, right? Um, I just don't, we just can't care too much anymore. And I, honestly, COVID this year, COVID, I mean, it's taught us all like these relationships that we have are the most important thing. Actually communing with nature in a true sense where you're just like, nurtured by it that's important um the health and well-being of friends and family that's important the rest of it i just think a lot of the pretense where everyone thought that they were special or everyone thought that they were i don't know we're all getting somewhere we're all we were all racing somewhere and i just don't know where we were racing to Hmm. and i think a lot of that's fallen away because you're seeing everyone on zoom and a two-year-old walks past in a diaper 
the cat sticks its bum in the front of the screen. You know, everyone's got tchotchkes on their wall and in the living room or the kitchen table. I just think a lot of the pretense has dropped, which is a long way of saying, you know, there are those who you are gifted in that you can make everyone feel comfortable in a room at a party and be social and really help be that glue between everyone. Then there's the Australian or someone else in the corner that may be a little bit more kind of off to themselves. I don't think anything either is right. I just think you just got to be yourself. I mean, it sounds so trite, but it's like, God, it's exhausting trying to be something you're not. And at the end of the day, no one gives a damn. No one cares. No one caring about what themselves. It's a waste of time. Simon, to stay on this point of a consistency <laughs> for the brand, let's just take a brand logo, for instance. Mm-hmm. I was told you got to do podcasts because you do a lot to have the logo behind me, right? It's going to be in every single video, right? So the brand expert here might not have the We First logo, right? And we can fix that. We can get, we can get you one of these. Yeah. The question is this, though, is like, how, how much weight do you put into brand consistency when it comes to putting your logo onto something? Yeah, I think, um, I think if you look at all the data, people are very tired of being sold to. They're, everyone is a media outlet. Right. There's so much density, so much noise and so on. Um, and we're also weary of Zoom living. Everyone's getting dry eyes and sort of eye problems now from staring at Zoom all day. Um, I think... It's nice to have a moniker that people can identify you with that shows that you know what it means to be a brand and be consistent and so on. Um, But at the same time, I think they really go by the quality of what you offer. If you offer value, Mm -hmm. that they're going to find you out. Put an identifier up there and so on. But I think there was a little bit of a temptation with social media especially, and I'm guilty of it, so many others are too, of suddenly we all could act like, as I said, media companies. So we could have a step and repeat wherever we go and we can do this and we can do that. And I think we're all enamored with this ability to kind of celebritize ourselves or to become like little media companies and so on. And I think that, that, that those days are over. I think a little, people are a little bit tired of it. There's always going to be those with the latest Instagram or Clubhouse and all these different things that are coming along. But, you know, I just think, just be appropriate as a human being. Like don't sell at people all the time. Don't overwhelm them with self-serving messaging. Mm. Really invest yourself in delivering value in terms of your product or service into what they need. And then they'll want to know more about you. Yeah, I should probably have a logo here or here. And we will next time, but I don't. It was, it was just, you know, it's not, not yeah. We should have our own Keep It Real series logo, both banners, both sides could have it. And we have a joined wallpaper, mm, pretty cool. Yeah, I I actually used to have a step and repeat from the conferences we used to do, but now the logo, someone changed the logo in the company, which is great, but now none of that stuff works, so it's it's gone. But no, you're right. I think um, if you're going to talk about, if you're going to show up as a brand in people's lives, then there are certain fundamentals. You've got to have a logo. You've got to have a color palette. <clears throat> you should have a, a brand tone of voice. Um, and, you know, I think the work that you can do, as I mentioned before, is to work out what that is authentic to you so you can just show up rather than manufacture something that you then have to kind of play up to or pretend to be all the time. And I think that's a big difference. Now, Simon, is there a way I can measure my brand worth? <clears throat> Like I've looked into a few different formulas that investors may use. Have you come across something that can put an actual dollar amount on a brand? 
Well, that's an interesting one. I mean, you know, there's different types of metrics for a brand. Like when we do work with clients, we, we look at it across a number of different verticals. One is business metrics. So it might be share price. It might be their ability to expand into new markets. Um, it might be, I don't know, profit margins, you know. Then the second vertical is brand metrics, which is, you know, reputation enhancement, you know, like your NPR scores or, you know, um, uh, or it might be your share of voice in a given conversation. So if you're all committed towards um, education for childhood education, how much of that dialogue in and around that do you own as, as a brand according to your social media metrics? Um, the third one is actually internal metrics. So your ability to attract talent, how long you the productivity levels of the of the talent, the staff you have, um, the satisfaction levels, and also your retention levels. And then fourthly are the impact metrics, which might be CSR, it might be the sustainable development goals, environmental social governance, B Corp uh, metrics, and so on. But they're all different ways that you can quantify it. So we look at it a business brand internal and, and, and impact. There are I have seen. Um, dollar value kind of propositions where people look at, you know, the value of a mention or a retweet or this or that, and you can aggregate the value of your brand in the sense of how many people are paying attention to it. But, um, you know, there's also intangibles. Like if you were to sell a company tomorrow, you know, anyone who's going to buy it is also going to look at sort of goodwill and these intangible things where it's the value of the reputation of the brand, which isn't a metric you can quantify, but it's something that's definitely factored in as well. So roundabout answer, but there's a few variables. <clears throat> right. Yeah. And that, I think that's what I saw too, is like you could subtract your intangible assets from your tangible assets and that could give you some type of value. And then the other one was like, you could compare your your price, your product price versus your competitor price. So can I, as real leaders, charge a higher price versus an economist for my magazine that could be quote unquote better quality? And And one other note on that. Yeah, it's true. And like if you're going to do a capital raise to raise some money for your young company above and beyond friends and family, you're going to do a series A or something just as important as the balance sheet and all of these different things that you've got to put in front of them is also the narrative, the story that you're telling. And so your reputation and so on is really important. We know this because we do this work for a lot of different companies or analyst calls where you've got a lot of wonkish data that can bore people to tears. But what's the story you're telling the analysts when you're a publicly traded company and they're kind of want to going to write about how well you're doing and whether they should tell people to invest in you or not. So at the end of the day, we're all human beings, you know, sitting around campfires telling stories. So, you know, in terms of your brand, it should be something that is very clear and articulate um, that is expressed through some key attributes, you know, your, your passionate, your social, your whatever it might be. Um, in, in terms of your company, you need a narrative so people can understand what you're in service of. And that's why your purpose is so important. Like, you know, your purpose is why you exist as a company. And that should inform everything you do from your supply chain to your HR and culture to your products and their innovation through your marketing and to your impact work. This is a, all a narrative you're telling. And that adds value at the end of the day to your brand, which is a component of your business. I, I, it's in every investor deck that I see, uh, whether it's someone who's coming to show an impact investor, storytelling's got to be on that investor slide deck. Yeah. You've got to be able to articulate the problem that you're solving and the vision that you have for your organization. Yeah. Another question is this. You're, we've talked a lot about purpose throughout these series and about change. And you know, the we first 
you know, could this create some serious change in, in a paradigm shift? And today on our team meeting, Simon, I shared a quote it was from uh, Thoreau, Henry David Thoreau, and it says uh, something along the lines of, uh, you know, we've got a million people chopping down the leaves of a tree, but it's, it's, you know, until you take one person to take down the tree, it's going to, you have to chop down the root, meaning we can change our behaviors and change our attitudes, but what's going to help that actually change forever, forever green is if you change your perspective. That's yeah. what paradigm is. Once you change yeah. your perspective, you can see things different. How important is that? And how do you articulate a change of perspective toward your product, service, brand, et cetera? It's a, it is a very profound question and something that I think a lot about and um, is really important because we're, we are at an, uh, an inflection point for humanity right now, not just because of COVID-19, but even prior to that, around climate and biodiversity and all these other issues, we are facing just a fundamental challenge or decision. Are we going to work with nature or against it? The UN Secretary General said um, just in December that we're at war with nature. And, you know, unless we, we, we decide to change our ways, we're going to put ourselves out of business as a species. And so we need a paradigm shift. We need a whole new perspective on our relationship to each other and the natural world on which we depend. We depend on each other. We depend on the natural world. And so, yes, how you go about it, in my case, I committed 10 years ago to write this book, We First, to get us from me first to we first. And now I'm writing this new book about how you lead with we. And so I'm, I'm, I'm literally trying to make my small contribution to what you're talking about from a linear narrative point of view. How do you make the business case and, and the an actionable roadmap for how you shift from a me first focus to a we first focus, and then how from all points of departure you you think with a we mindset. So I'm literally trying to do what you solve, what you're, you're pointing to. In the abstract, how you solve for it is you've got to start with the cognitive dissonance, which is at the heart of any shift. You know, you've really got to sort of say to people like, this is the way things have been, and this is the way they could be, mm. and here are the, the the cost benefit analysis of both. Mm. You've got because. In the absence of that, people just go, well, that doesn't seem right, or that's not the way I'm used to doing it, or that's not how we've always done it or something, and then they shut it down and, and then they ignore it. Um, and then you have to present a viable alternative. And so if I go into companies with my team and we talk about this, there's a few key things we do. We talk about the business case for making that shift. What's the data? What does the research say? Secondly, we show them the competitive set and say, listen, Let's suspend you for a second, like you doing anything different. Let's look at what your competitors are doing. Hmm. And invariably, some of them are doing something akin to what you're talking about. So that starts to tap into the competitive instincts. Right. And then thirdly, you look at a cost-benefit analysis where you go, okay, not only what could be the potential benefits of doing this, relevancy, reaching new demographics, expanding into new markets, whatever it might be, risk mitigation, reputation enhancement, but what is the potential cost of not doing it? As in your competitors do it. You're less and less relevant to the marketplace. You get disintermediated from the stakeholders that you really need to drive your business, whatever it might be. And so when you do that, when you show the research and you show the competitors and you show them what the, co the benefit of doing it could be and the cost of not doing it could be, then you can start to make that paradigm shift with people where they start, and we find we've done this with countless um, SLTs or ELTs, executive leadership teams, at first there's those who are like, no, nah, we're not going to change. We're not going to do anything different. And then they walk away. And after two or three days, they're like, 
huh, our number one competitor is kind of doing that, huh? Hmm. Oh, now I understand why they're doing it. Maybe we should do a little bit of that and, and slowly it starts to unravel. So you've got to expose that dissonance between what we're doing now and where we're going to go. Then you've got to step into that and really sort of honor the people who are listening and start with where, what they can hear and walk through those things, research, competitive set, cost-benefit analysis, and then collaborate with them to try and get there. And it's not easy to do. But to your point, one of the most important things is you need story. You need a narrative for it. You need to kind of paint a picture for them as to where they are now and where they could get to, and then walk with them with respect, you know, to get there. Cognitive dissonance. I love that <clears> phrase <throat> in this example. And for our audience listening out there, if you don't know the term cognitive dissonance, this is how it was explained to me. It's kind of messed up. I, when I was growing up, I had a great basketball coach, mentor, someone I truly respected, friend's father, right? right. Growing up, highly respected in the community. And then one day in the newspaper, it comes out that, you know, molested, raped a young little girl. How in my mind am I supposed to see this person I idolized to then see someone do that? I can't believe it, right? So that's what you're saying with these CEOs and these executives. It's hard to see at first. But then when you show yeah. examples, this is the little girl. Here's the newspaper. Here's the proof. This exactly. is what happened. This is what the family's saying. This is what... You know, all these things come together and you go, ah, you know what? I didn't see it coming, but now I can see. Now I can see it. Can and see it. you have to leave those breadcrumbs. I really found this to be true. Like when I, at the end of my first book, I went out there and launched it and I drunk all the Kool-Aid. You know, I'd already drunk all the information and everything. And people are kind of looking at me like, what's going on with this guy? And I, I realized that they hadn't come with me. And so I had to do these breadcrumbs to take people with me. Like in 2011, I wrote The Future of Profit is Purpose. Long before the, what's going on right now, the evolution of revolution is contribution. Be the celebrant, not celebrity of your stakeholder community. The best hope for business is the business of hope. All of these things were just little sound bites, little installments in a different mindset that would take people from where they are now to where you hope that you could go with them. And if you're in a pitch situation, if you're listening to this and you're at a big company or you're a startup or an entrepreneur and you really want to kind of help uh, succeed when you're in that room, whether that means raise some capital, sell some product, get a new job, whatever, you've really got to start with what people are willing to listen to because otherwise people will see you, will look at you, but they won't see you. They will listen, but they won't hear because you're not talking or saying things that they're willing to hear or see. And hopefully this makes sense. You've got to start with where they are and then slowly upgrade their understanding or their appreciation of what you're trying to present to them. And when you do that, it's remarkable if you go into a room and, you know, I, I was a pitch doctor for a long, long time for brands and advertising agencies. So this is sort of stress tested. If you go into a room and your number one focus when you go in is to understand where they're at and what their primary concerns are and what they're trying to solve for and then effectively throw your presentation out the window but kind of reverse engineer it into where they are now and show them how it can serve what they're trying to achieve. At the end of the presentation, their, their experience of you and that hour together in that pitch room or capital raise room or whatever it is will be 
you are the solution to an existing problem I have instead of another problem I don't have money or time for. Mm. Right. Like I got it. You sounded, there's a lot of fancy words that all sounded great, but like, I'm going to yes you to death. Thank you very much. All right. Now, what was I trying to do before they came in? Right. As opposed to, holy crap, you walked in the door. You really gave me what I needed to hear and you're a solution for what I need. So what are our next steps? It's night and day, the transformation. And I say this as someone who's done it in a room a thousand times. It's like, just go in there and meet them where they are. And really try and add value and serve their needs instead of trying to promote what you want to sell. Right. And sometimes easier said than done, right? You know, it's like sure. we got all these impact CEOs. And the thing is, they're thinking up here. They're doing the things you're telling them to do. I'm thinking in 2050, I'm going to solve the world's most pressing issues, water shortage, uh, wow. climate change, uh, social injustice. I'm working and developing a business model around it. Now, how do you articulate that to the organization? And that's the question, uh, Simon, I haven't even asked you on the show yet, is the importance of internal branding, how it will affect your own company versus repetition and consistency and meeting people at the party. How important is a consistent theme for your brand for your own employees? I mean, it's so crazy important. Now, actually, I was talking to Rick Ridgway, who used to be the VP of Environmental Initiatives at Patagonia a couple of years ago. And I said to him, Rick, everyone points to Patagonia and says, you guys are the bomb. You know, what do you do differently? Or I said, and where do you see the biggest opportunity for brands to really be a leader now, to leave everyone in their tracks? And he said, internally, in terms of how they treat their people. Mm. And the importance of internal branding is this. And I, I mean that in terms of brand storytelling internally, but also an employer brand. I don't know if you know, folks listening know an employer brand is, but that really is codifying what your brand is as an employer so that you know you become an employer choice. People want to work for you. You see a lot of companies doing doing a lot of effort to this end, like Salesforce with their Ohana platform and all the work that Mark Benioff does, where you know there's a lot of effort they put into making sure that people go, wow, that's a great place to work. Um, so why is it important? Number one, your ability to attract talent, 100%. Number two, risk mitigation. I mean, there is so much employee activism now. If you look at what happened with Google, what happened with Apple, what happened with Amazon around climate um, and Google with pay scales and gender bias and all these different things. Um, you know, employees are calling our companies all day long now. So risk mitigation, productivity and fulfillment of your employees. If someone knows why they work there, it makes, helps them make sense of the value of the sweat equity they put in every day when they choose to come to work for you instead of somebody else. We all know how important the talent wars are. You know, you've got to win and keep the best people. And then it, also retention. You know, we all know it's a lot more expensive to hire someone new instead of keeping someone you've got. So there's a huge P&L bottom line cost benefit to not, you know, um, losing people. So there's a, there's a benefit there as well. There's also intangibles. You know, when you have a true purpose, a culture of purpose, people show up differently. They bring their whole selves to work. They, they really put their head and their heart into their work. And it also is a huge driver of innovation and engagement. The last statistics I saw from, um, from Gallup were that only 27% of US employees are what they call fully engaged. So that means 73% are not fully engaged. Imagine you had on your P&L some other line item like the machinery or the product that only worked 27% of the time. Right. 
and it's the biggest line item on your P&L. It's where you're spending all your money. So internal branding is so important for all those reasons and more that I mentioned. Um, but also when it's done right, it's in the air. When you walk into Patagonia in Ventura or if you walk into Nike World Campus up in Beaverton, it's just it's, it's in the air and you're just like, damn, I can, I can feel it. I can just feel it and that's what you want to get towards. Now, what are some signals? Like, I know we can't measure productivity every single day of our employees. Like, what are some signals as a leader of an organization that signals to you that, you know, you may be straying away from this brand or the, the mission of the organization isn't really articulating uh, with or articulating, resonating with your employees? Yeah, I think you need to institutionalize that. You need to have check-ins built in. The last thing you want to do is wait till it gets so bad that something blows up in your face. And so like at WeFirst, we have a um, daily check-in, especially ever since COVID. Every day we do a half-hour check-in in in the morning. But we have a weekly um, meeting for an hour. And the first order of business always is what we call strengths and stretches, which is what I took from my daughter's preschool classes when they used to go to preschool. Now they're 21 and 18. Um, And you talk about what's a strength, like what are you happy about in the last week and so on, or what's a stretch, like things you're not happy with. And it's amazing when you build that cadence over time, people like say things like, um, I asked a couple of questions on our last call, Zoom call, and no one answered me. And it seemed like other people's questions are more important and I don't feel heard. Hmm. Or Simon, you're always walking around with no shoes on because, and you use the excuses you're Australian, but I think it's kind of gross to put some shoes on. (laughs) Like, like, you know, and people feel okay. And, 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 or, and, you, and all the time we see people saying, listen, I'm just having a bad day. I'm not going to talk about why. I'm just off my game. I need your support. Right. And so we do that on a weekly basis. We also do quarterly reportings where we show all our earnings of the company. We're a B Corp. And to show everyone how we're doing, what's working, what's not, and to get feedback um, from everyone. And we've also just shifted to... Um, biannual reviews instead of annual reviews because it felt too long to only really talk to somebody once a year. And so you, you can check in there. And I, I mentioned all of those because in every one of those circumstances, we use HR protocols where it's a two-way street. Like I'm going to give some feedback or advice and I would like the same back from you. And so everybody knows that. So all of that is to answer your question. You've got to institutionalize. You've got to build it in as a system inside your company. And you have to constantly have an open door policy where um, if someone's not happy, and we all know each other also well now, right? right? Everybody in your company, you can tell when someone's off their game. And if you see someone's not feeling right or just seems a bit short with people or whatever, check in with them and say, what's going on? How can I help? Is it something at work? Like you've just got to be very proactive no matter how busy you are. Simon, 2021, it's a different business landscape than 2020. To wrap this up, for business owners listening to this right now, anyone interested in your advice, I don't know who it would be, but we're getting some advice today. What's the one thing they need to know in 21 that relates to their brand? You know, I'll provide context and I'll give you an answer. We keep building on the past when instead we need to back out of the future. And what I mean by that is we are facing a very compromised future, climate, biodiversity, oceans, so many things. 
and they are compounding and they're hurtling back towards us from the future. Why is that important? There's a hockey stick of expectation coming towards us from the future in terms of the role that business is playing. And the luxury of choice as to how far and how fast we change is going to be ripped out of our hands in the next three to five years as issues like fires in California or tornadoes or floods or God knows another virus or all these different things that are a consequence of how we treat each other and how we treat the planet really visit our daily lives in very, very acute ways as we're currently experiencing right now. So what do we need to do in 20, uh, um, 2021? I'll use two words. I think, you know, it really is, a, you have to adopt the mindset of re- relentless positivity right now. Relentless positivity. We can all be pessimistic about the way things are and the prospect that they could get worse. But that is a self-fulfilling prophecy and we will, it'll spiral out of control. We can all sit on our hands and say someone else is going to fix it because things are so serious now. Someone's going to step in. That's delusional, I would argue. Instead, we all need to recognize that whether we're an employee, whether we're a solopreneur, whether we're a CEO of a global corporation, we all have agency for change. We all have the ability to drive change ourselves. And to do that, we must be highly energetic, like relentless, but really positive in the way that we think about everything we're doing right now. We are arguably in a bit of a downward sort of kind of thing. I don't know what you call that, but one of them. And uh, we need to pull up fast and we need to think and behave differently. And we need to adopt a very, very um, stringent or rigid mindset to that end. And so, you know, not to be funny about it all, but, you know, I look at this year and starting tomorrow as the beginning of an extraordinarily powerful and positive time where we're going to kind of rediscover the best in all of us after years of negativity, and we are going to go like hell. And not just because that's a good thing to do and we want to, but we have no choice. And so that's what I would recommend, just be relentlessly positive and and get to work. I love it. You know, it goes on the theme as well, the paradigm shift. You change the perspective of positivity, the behaviors and the actions follow. So I really yeah. like that advice right there, Simon. It's been a pleasure having you on the seventh episode. Look, of the I, get a, series. I get a gold star though. At least I put the social handles up here for the first time. I've never done that before. You beat so me to it. How can people yeah. find more information about you? We're talking about. Yeah. Today, yeah. Mind. I mean, I'd love people to connect on social. All we're doing at We First as a team is putting out podcasts and blog posts and all these insights from how other people are making a success of being um, a purposeful business and making a difference. And if you'd like to kind of find out more about my new book and, and so on, just you can see the link down there. And I promise, Kevin, I'll get a logo here. I'll draw one on the wall here or something, and they'll be like, but you've got a, you've got a physical background. This is just a wall in my office at home. There you go. <laughs> there you go. I got, no, I got nothing. So I'll, uh, I'll try and get fancy for the next one. I mean, this is just, right behind me is my bedroom. So it's just a little right, curtain that right. comes down. We got a nice little setup. I could show you a couple pointers here a little bit later. I don't know how many times I got to tell you, Simon. Just let me know when you need one and I'll deliver one to you, okay? I'll, I will drive up to Santa Monica and drop it off. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Ben. Thanks to everyone listening. Hopefully it's helpful. And most importantly right now, please do stay safe. I've been surrounded by friends who are, you know, suffering COVID right now and some have even lost some family members and so on. And it is no joke wherever you are in the States or around the world. Please take it very seriously. We'll get through it. Well spoken today, Simon. Now we do have a couple of questions uh, coming in for you. Uh, Okay. Let's just answer this one real quick. The first one, 
uh, is this. Absolutely love the quote. The best hope for business is the business of hope. So what gives you hope with businesses for our future? Yeah, you know, it's a question I ask myself. And I've actually asked a bunch of other people that I interviewed for my new book. And I get some sliding and a spectrum of answers, and I'll give you a few. I personally believe in a sort of negative cup half empty kind of way that our survival instinct is very strong. Human beings are really, really selfish until they're out of business. And then they're really, really ingenious about how to make sure they don't die individually or collectively as a species. Hmm. Another answer I get is the innate goodness of humanity. And I believe that. I think we all come into this world with an empath- from an empathetic mindset. We are neurologically wired, chemically wired, hardwired to care about each other and the planet. And somehow we unlearn that, but given half the chance, we can relearn it. And I believe that, you know, when COVID happened, we didn't all reach for our car or our set of golf clubs. We reached for each other. And I think that's really, really instructive. There's some true insight in that. And then the third answer I hear is, well, we have no choice. Why are you optimistic? Why do you have no hope? Because a lack of hope, hopelessness is, is the end of us. I mean, it really, if we throw up our hands, it's the end of us. And actually, there's a, a recent TED talk out by a gentleman named Per, a Dutch gentleman, who did a lot of research into why there wasn't more of a response to the whole dialogue around global warming, which is now climate change, which has become climate crisis, which has now become climate emergency, and the whole narrative has shifted. And he found that fear-based communications around these issues actually leads to disengagement and passivity and hopelessness. Right. And so... You know, positivity is not some woo-woo crazy thing. And being hopeful is not some woo-woo crazy thing. It's actually um, kickstarting a neurological process that is sort of self, you know, reinforces itself and allows us to achieve more and without which we won't get anything done. So I think um, that's why there's, there's three of the reasons. Um, and also, I don't know, what the hell, right? Right. I think, I mean, honestly, what can't we do if we do it together? Seriously, if history is any guide, when, when we tap into our best selves, our highest purpose, and do it collectively, I'll be damned if we can't solve for this. I mean, just look at the last few years. Look at the way the world has shown up for each other in the last year. It's been amazing. I always, we used to have a, a yeah. man who worked at the uh, local McDonald's where I grew up. And every time you <laughs> pick up food from him, he'd say, stay positive, stay have positive. a nice day. And it was always something that stuck with me. I'm like, yeah. this guy. Yeah. Work at McDonald's telling me to stay positive. If he can do it, you can do it too, folks. Yeah, I, I've got an uncle back in Australia who I haven't seen for 30 years. Um, and he always used to say, I always remember this when I was dating my wife way back when. Um, I'd say, how are you doing, Sam? And he'd go, best day of my life. Best day ever. Best day of my life. And it was probably a horrible day. Right. But just how, you know, we all know that the only choice we have is how we resp- respond to the stimuli that's given to us. And so we can choose to be hopeful. We'll be much nicer people to be around and we'll get a hell of a lot more done. I love so. it. I love it. Uh, stay positive. That, that was my father's always uh, super fantastic. How are you doing? Yeah. Super fantastic. Uh, you can say it. Also actions too. If you smile, you feel better. I mean, it, it falls. I've got these little notes on my right in front of my computer here. I just took them off my computer. And the top one there is a little positive symbol. Like, you know, I'm 54 years old and I'm still writing stupid notes to myself and putting in front of my computer to keep my mind focused on what it is. I mean, this is the work of life, you know, it's, it's work. Definitely. You know? Absolutely. Well, Simon, wise words today, as always, on the seventh episode of the Keep It Real series. Pleasure having you on. Congratulations and on the book. What? What's the thank tomorrow. 
tomorrow morning we have a new president in the United States. Right. And I think that is a very, very good cause to be positive and hopeful in a very inclusive and um, empathetic way. And I'm very, very excited about that. And uh, yeah, thank you for the kind words. You know, if you want to check out the new book, um, there's a link there. But um, I, I think 2021 is going, we have so much pent up appetite for empathy, for love, for contribution, for connection, for renewal, for positivity. And my hope is there'll be an emotional watershed of that, even if economically there's a lag behind it. But I think we're now going to be pointed in a much better direction, especially if we all get to work. I love it. I love it. And uh, big milestone. You're right. You're right for a lot of people. And a lot of people, again, you may have to change the perspective. Uh, and it goes both ways as well, right? Yeah. So um, Gotta go positivity, together. though, is something that we can all get behind. So, Simon, it's been a pleasure having you on this show. I'm thrilled for next month. Uh, folks, so if you want to continue uh, to stay with the Keep It Real series, make sure you hit that link in this chat box here to subscribe to the Realtors podcast and be notified when we go live with Simon Mainwaring. Also, a few other ways you can get a hold of us. We've got a few cool episodes coming up in the month of February with Seth Goldman, the former founder of Honest Tea, uh, as well as Daniel Goldman the author of EQ, Emotional Intelligence. Some interesting episodes coming up here in February that we do not want you to miss. So make sure you hit that link in the chat box there. Subscribe to the Release Podcast to be notified of its release. For Simon Mainwaring, I'm Kevin Edwards, asking you to go out there and always, folks, keep it real. Thanks, Simon. Thanks. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks, everyone. And thank you, good people for hanging on to this episode of the real leaders podcast with simon mainwaring we hope you enjoyed it as much as we did and folks if you didn't know by now all of these episodes are streamed live on our crowdcast channel got a few episodes coming up in february that you won't want to miss where it's hundreds of dollars of value that you can get for free that's right. All you got to do is go online to real-leaders.com slash podcast live events and RSVP for an upcoming episode with a real leader where you can ask your questions after the show. That's it for me. Thanks for being a real leader and stay tuned for the next episode.